previous two sermons, we've looked a little bit at how we got our Bible and what it is and how unique it is to us. Some of the internal and external evidences that this book is indeed a very special book, more than just very special. It is God's revealed word to us. But we need to go further and ask questions like, how true is it then? How accurate is it really? How important is it for us as Christians? How authoritative is it? This morning we're going to look at two of these things. We're going to take a layman's trip, if you like, through what the theologians call the authority of the Word of God, and secondly, the inerrancy of the Word of God. So first of all, we need to look at the following statement. Is the Bible God's Word so that if we disbelieve or disobey the Bible, we are then disbelieving or disobeying God? This is what we mean by the authority of the Bible, if you like. Is the God of the universe speaking to us? This is Jesus Christ, our Lord, speaking to us, nothing more and nothing less. So our attitude towards the Bible is the same as our attitude towards God. If we doubt these words, if we disobey these words, then we are disobeying God. Now, I've said before, and I'm going to go over a little bit of ground we talked about during the very first sermon we had. This is God's Word. And be careful of those who tell you that it contains God's Word. Because there's a vast difference between being God's Word and just containing it, and I think you can see why. The Old Testament, again and again, says literally, over and over, hundreds of times, thus says the Lord. Prophets and others say, thus says the Lord. And in this way, these prophets and these kings and others are claiming nothing less than that they are speaking the very words of God that he has given them. Very many times in the scripture, God is said to speak through prophets and others. So we have a clear record of the actual words that God wanted us to know. And our very first memory verse, as we, as we remember from a couple of weeks back, from the New Testament, where Paul, writing to Timothy, says, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed by God. The old version would have said, inspired by God. But what does that mean? How can Scripture be God-breathed? Well, I want you to imagine somebody writing, a prophet maybe, or an apostle, and they're sitting in their room, and they've got their parchment in front of them, and their, their old inks and their old pens, and they're beginning to write. And as they're writing, God is present there in the room, in the presence of the, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he's guiding that person as they're writing. He's breathing over them in such a way that the words that are chosen are God's words. God wants to ensure that no errors are made. But, at the same time, God is not necessarily, and in fact on many, many occasions, doesn't dictate those words, word for word. He makes sure get what gets said gets said, but he doesn't always dictate. He allows the writer to use his own or her own language, dialect, idiosyncrasies, figurative speech. Some were great writers, others were less great writers. And he allows that to happen. But all the time, the Holy Spirit of God is breathing, inspiring, so that there is no error, no mistake. 
So when we talk about the Bible being God's words, we talk God's word, we're talking about the result of a process. A process. So how do we get this? Let, let's have a look at some of the occasions where, where we find this happening. Sometimes it's like dictation. So we see John on the Isle of Patmos, or we're not sure exactly when, but probably around towards the very end of the first century. He's writing the book of Revelation in that familiar sec- section in the beginning of the, of the book in chapter 2. He writes, there's a message that Christ has for the seven churches of Asia Minor. And it says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. And God tells him exactly what to write. So the message comes from Christ directly. John hears it, and it is written down. It is, if you like, dictated. We see this again in the, New Test- in the Old Testament on many occasions. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah the prophet, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, and so on. So this appears to be some form of dictation, if you like. God's either, or Isaiah is either hearing God's word directly, out loud, or he's experiencing it somehow in his, his mind, but he's writing down what he hears. But in many other sections of the Bible, Direct dictation is not what appears to happen. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, where the writer says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. It wasn't always the same way of dictation. And to me, one of the most interesting is is our New Testament writer, Dr. Luke, the physician who uses his own very well-developed research skills as a doctor to compose his gospel. So he says, and and he's he's writing at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, many have undertaken to draw up an, an account of all the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as were handed down to us by those who were the first witnesses. In other words, he's got all of these, these first-hand witnesses who've been speaking to him. And he's been recording all of this stuff. And he says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We get the impression that Luke is not being dictated to, but the God, the God of creation is there in the room as that doctor is writing and God is breathing, the Holy Spirit is working, and the word of God is being recorded. But Luke is using his own scientific, very good uh, Greek language in the book of uh, the Gospel of Luke and again in the Acts. So in between these extremes of actual dictation and a man using his own research and writing skills, there seem to be many other indications of many other ways in which God communicates through human writers. Sometimes it's dreams. Other times it's it's visions. Other times people seem to hear God's actual voice. Others observe, for example, Jesus at work. And they listen to his teachings, and then they go and they, they, they search their memory, and they bring out what they can remember, and they write these things down, so that in the end we have this completely accurate revelation of God's word to us. And look what Peter says, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There it is again. 
Peter's not here trying to deny that there's no human will or no human style involved at all or no human personality, but rather that the ultimate source of every prophecy, every piece of writing, is not man's decision, but it's God. It's the Holy Spirit's action working with that particular man or that woman in the writing of the Scripture. And this is echoed throughout the Gospels as well. So right in the beginning, in the, Christ, in the Christmas story, you see this. Right, this is Matthew chapter, chapter 1 and verse 22, when Matthew's recording the story of the birth of Christ. And he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophets. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And even Jesus himself, when he's tempted by the, by the devil, he quotes again, he goes back to the Bible, and he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes where from? From the mouth of God. That is what we mean by God breathed. And finally, Luke, once more in Acts chapter 1 and verse 16, he's recording Peter's words to the 120 believers. And he says, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be filled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David. So in this act of breathing scripture, it applies to the Old Testament and it applies also very much to the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's a, there's a word for scripture and it's used 51 times and it's the word graph, G-R-A-P-H-E, graph or graphe. It's used 51 times. Most of the times it's used to refer to the Old Testament scriptures. So we saw a little bit earlier when Christ was talking about the, the word from the mouth of God, that was talking about scripture in the Old Testament. But there are two places in the New Testament where it is also used. And the first place it is used is where Peter's speaking of, 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 of Paul's writing. And he says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote. That's the word scripture, or graph. It's the only, only one of only two times it's used in the New Testament. He could have used another much more common word for writing, but he didn't. He used this word scripture. He wrote to you with wisdom that God gave him. He writes in the same way all his letters. That's the word graph, scripture, again. And of course we see in 1 Timothy in chapter 5 and verse 18, where Christ himself is speaking, and Christ says, for scripture, graph, says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading the grain, the worker deserves his wages. So Jesus is calling scripture in the New Testament context this graph. And it's one of the reasons why we believe not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well, is scripture. It is God-breathed. It is very, very, very special. But we now need to explore another question. Are we convinced when we read this book that we are really, truly reading God's words? And are these words true and are they accurate? You see, the Bible as it sits on the shelf has no power. It only becomes God's word to us when we open it and we read from it and God speaks to us through his word. 
When the Gideons place a Bible in the hotel room in the top drawer of a bedside table, it has no power until somebody picks it up and reads the words. And I've met folk, non-Christian folk, who keep Bibles in their home as some kind of power they believe that's going to ward off evil spirits. That's not what we're talking about. The Bible is God's word when we open it, and it begins to speak to us. But is it true? Is it true? That's what we've got to investigate. You see, Paul says, and let me take one step back. I believe this is ultimately true, and I need to stop here just for a little, for a little moment. I believe that we'll only ultimately be convinced that the Bible really is God's word, and it is powerful and true when the Holy Spirit speaks to us through God's word. And there may be some who have questions about that this morning, and we need to pursue that a little bit further. We can bring all of the external evidences to bear, but it's the Holy Spirit whose job it is to speak to us through these scriptures to convince us of the power and the accuracy of these words. Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says, this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. And I'm speaking to the one or two or three of you out there this morning who have some serious doubts and some concerns about certain parts of the Scripture. You find it quite difficult, and believe me, I've been there, and I've been there so many times. You quite find it quite difficult to believe in the story of Adam and Eve being real people, for example. You find it quite difficult to believe that there really was a Noah and an ark and a flood. You find it quite difficult to believe that there was a Jonah and he was swallowed by a large fish. I want you to accept this morning, please, that what you may need to do is to cast yourself first upon the Holy Spirit of God for his conviction and his leading and not on your own reasoning. To really understand the depths of the word of God We need his spirit. And sometimes what we need to do, and I'm at heart a pretty skeptical person. Anyone who knows me well would say that. But when I come to the word of God, I've learned over the years that I first of all got to start with faith and believe this is God's word. Then it's remarkable how the reason comes. You start with believing. And then there's another very important concept here as well. The ultimate conviction we have, that we have the words of God in the Bible, that these really are God's words, that can never come apart from the words of Scripture themselves. It's not as if the Holy Spirit says to us one day, you see that Bible sitting there on your, on your, on your bedside table? That's the word of God, you ought to believe it. It doesn't do it that way. It's when we open the Bible and we begin to read it, 
or we recall to our memories those verses that we know so well. It's in those moments that the Holy Spirit convinces us that the Word of God is the Word of God. And those people who have the most doubts about the Word of God are the people who hardly ever read it. The more we read it, the more we turn to Him in faith and we say, Lord, convince me, the more He does just that. When we're actively reading the Scriptures, our Bibles open before us. God's Spirit speaks to us in very special ways in and through His Word. And we believe, as we've been saying, that this Word is absolutely, absolutely and entirely truthful. How do we know it's truthful? How do we know it's, it's accurate? Well, we know this firstly because God cannot be false. God cannot lie. And if he cannot be false, and if he cannot lie, that's why we speak of the inerrancy, the, the faultlessness of Scripture. Look at some of these Scriptures. Titus Paul writing to Titus says, in the hope of eternal life, which God does not lie, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time, in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie. Hebrews 6.18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. David says, to God in 2 Samuel in chapter 7, verse 28. You are God, and your words are true. So if God then is true, if God cannot lie, if God is always truthful, then we believe all of the words in Scripture must be truthful because they are God's words. That's the logic. And we find this affirmed again and again in Scripture. The words of the Lord are words that are pure, silver refined in a furnace, ground purified seven times, so this truth is taken and it's purified and purified, so what you get in the end is as true as you can ever get. Every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Forever, O Lord, your word is fixed in the heavens and the heavens and the earth may even pass away, but my word will never pass away. So God's words are true. So then, God's words are the ultimate standard by which all truth must be judged. Say that again. God's words are the ultimate standard by which all truth must be judged. Jesus is praying for his disciples in the garden shortly before his arrest. And he says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He doesn't say, he could have said, your word is true. But the Greek translation won't allow that. It's not your word is true. Your word is truth. It is truth. Just hours before that, Christ had said to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth. I am the truth. God's truth is the standard by which all truth is judged. So we have this question next. Can any new fact or any truth ever come along that will contradict the Word of God? 
Will any scientific or historical or geographical fact ever arise that can contradict the Bible? I believe that's impossible. I really, really believe that. No fact will ever turn up that God has not known about for all ages and taken into account when the scriptures were recorded. Nothing can come along to cast doubt on God's word. However, we do need to realize that the Bible in its truth is not necessarily exhaustive. What does that mean? While the Bible is absolutely true and it is truth, there are certain things the Bible doesn't talk about. The Bible doesn't say, Ed talked to you anything about what is the best way to put a color scheme on your living room. There are certain truths about the art of decorating a house that the Bible never mentions. There are a number of things the Bible never mentions. You can't go to the Bible and say, Lord, ought to I fly or take the train? You're not going to find that particular answer necessarily. The Bible doesn't talk about those advanced forms of travel. The Bible hints at certain political issues, but many times it doesn't. It doesn't talk necessarily about the fact that the United Nations has its headquarters in New York. These are facts. These are truthful things. The Bible doesn't talk about the fact that the weather in England is rubbish. But it's a fact. It's true. But the Bible is not exhaustive. It doesn't deal with all those truths. But what truth does it deal with? Everything we need to know about God's dealings with you and with me and with his people. So we say without hesitation that scripture then is our final authority. God's word, this scripture, in its written form, in its written original form, is totally authoritative. We do not turn to the words of any other religious leader for final authority. We do not need to turn to any book that is written on Christian subjects other than the Bible. They can be very useful. We do not need them. We don't rely on our own spiritual experience or our own feelings that this or that is what God wants. Any word, any experience, any feeling, any idea that is not entirely and unequivocally the truth of the written word of God has no authority over us. And I'm afraid this is where so many have gone wrong. The Roman Catholic Church has gone wrong on this a thousand times through the history of, of its church where other statements besides the scriptures have been recorded as equally true. Some of the cults have now formed their own Bibles that they put alongside the Holy Scriptures. And they say, you've got to give these equal credence. But we're not to the turn to the words of any other book if we want ultimate authority. And we need to ask this question. And it's a question which some have asked in some of the questions that you've sent through to me. Are there any are there any errors or contradictions in the Bible? We have to remind ourselves that what our statement of faith says, that what is God-breathed is the original writing. When Moses wrote, when David wrote, when Paul wrote, God was in the act of breathing, and that was the original God-breathed scripture. So you say, but 
What about my Bible here? You say, I, I've got two Bibles at home. One is the King James vision, Version, which was the authorized version of King James back in the early 1600s, and I love that one. And then I've got this, this, uh, this new international version as well. And my problem, Rob, is they're a wee bit different. In fact, sometimes they seem to be quite different. Not just in their style of language, but they seem to say quite different things. Why is that? Well, it's, it's largely because every year that goes past, not only does our own language, the English language, change, so we don't speak the way they spoke in the early 1600s, and it's quite difficult to understand for some of us, but we find more and more things. We dig, we dig up more and more archaeological discoveries. We discover more and more about the ancient languages so that as we go along further and further and further, the, the more recent the translation is, the more likely it is to be more accurate. And if it's the original text that is God-breathed, and not my version. So if it's, if it's what Moses wrote, what David wrote, what Paul wrote that was God-breathed, can I trust my Bible? Can I trust this one here? This was printed two years ago. Can I trust it? Well, the answer to that, I believe, is a resounding yes. A resounding yes. Let me just take this one step further. Sorry, no. Can I trust my version of the Bible? The one in your pews is a new international version. Can we trust it? I believe the answer is yes. Scholars today are in agreement that, for example, this version, this NIV, is somewhere between 98 and 99.5% what was originally written. Somewhere between 98 and 99.5% an accurate rendition of what was originally written. That gives me great comfort. And the few percent that we may not absolutely have, have little bearing on any real doctrine or any real truth. They are very, very tiny points indeed. The Bible is originally given in its entirety as the word of God without error. Fully reliable in fact and doctrine. But we need to think one more thing here. This doesn't mean that when we read in our Bible that we don't sometimes come across certain stuff, certain types of language, certain types of, 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 of writing, which doesn't sound very factual. And people pick this up and they say, well, there you go, the Bible's not true. So the Bible does say, it says, the sun rises in the east and it sets in the west. Or the Bible talks about the four corners of the earth. And some have said, there you go, the Bible writers didn't know what they were talking about because they thought the sun rose and they thought the earth had four corners. Therefore the Bible is not true, it's not accurate, it's full of errors. When was the last time you talked about a sunset? When last time did you say, I, I loved going on travel, I love to travel to the far corners of the earth? That's the language we use. 
And remember back in those days, they had no idea of, of what we, we, we know today. But all of you know that the sun doesn't rise. It looks like it's rising, but you know it isn't. It's not inaccurate just because the Bible uses that kind of language. Other people say, well, the Bible can't be accurate because it just uses round numbers. It always, it always says it's 100 or 8,000 or 5,000, and that can't be true because, for example, there's, there's one s- s- section in, in, in one of the kings where they talk about 8,000 foot soldiers. And they say, well, the Bible can't be accurate because I bet there were only 7,947. Nobody went out to count them, so the Bible's not accurate. Goodness me. Do you sense a sense of desperation here? How many times do we say, I live just a mile from here, when we know what we really mean is 1.15 miles? And one that I read recently, and there's a whole book been written on it, the Bible is not accurate because people quote Jesus differently. Mark says this is what Jesus said, and Peter says it's, or Luke says it slightly differently. And I had to look at that, and I said, well, let's, let's figure this out. Why is that? Is the Bible inaccurate? Are these guys getting mixed up? What's going on here? You see, in the modern Western culture that we have, when we're quoting somebody, we try our best to get it absolutely correct. And why do we do that? Because of the consequences of not doing it. We can find ourselves in litigation if we get it wrong. Not so in the Middle East. In the Middle East, there was never that attempt to be absolutely accurate when you were quoting somebody. In both the Hebrew and the Greek language, there are no quotation marks. There's no punctuation at all. Many times, verbs are just left out. And you have to rely on the nouns and the adjectives to figure out what the verb ought to be, or vice versa. There are no chapter divisions. There are no verse divisions when the Bible was originally written. This was all added sometime later. So when quotations don't seem identical, it doesn't matter because that was never the intention in the first place. The intention was to reflect the truth and the, and the kernel of what was being said, the essence of what was being said. And that is what is done. And still there are no contradictions. There are no contradictions in the original text. If there are some apparent contradictions, we've erred somewhere. Either in our understanding or in our interpretation or possibly in the translation. And I I, I want to issue an invitation here this morning. Please come and get help if there's something in the scriptures that is causing you trouble. There's there's an apparent contradiction or there's a a section of the scripture that really feels hard. Please come and talk to us. We may not have the answer for you right away, but we will find that answer for you, and we will work through it with you. I'd hate anybody to, to have to go through their Christian life with this deep kind of concerns below the surface. Can, is it true? Isn't it true? Can I trust it? You see, and we, we come to a close now, if we cannot accept that the Bible is faultless, inerrant, truly truthful, fully truthful. What does that imply? Well, it implies, first of all, if we deny the inerrancy of the Scriptures, we've got one major moral problem. What do I mean by that? Well, 
For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Follow God's example, or be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So we are called as Christians to imitate God's truthfulness in our speech and in our behavior and so on. We are to behave as we believe God has commanded us to behave and to be as we are those in his image. How, how are we to behave? But if, if we believe that God's word is somehow strewn with errors or that God has spoken falsely in some way, then how on earth can we be imitators of him? If we believe, for example, that certain scriptures were only meant for a certain time and they certainly weren't meant for us, then I believe we're on a a slippery slope. If we can't trust in the accuracy of the scriptures entirely, then we begin to wonder soon or later whether we can actually trust God in anything that he says. If we believe that the Bible is false or inaccurate in some relatively small details, how long will it take before we come to believe that God's word is inaccurate and therefore not binding upon us in law in larger areas? So we should believe that God is not speaking to us through his word on issues like homosexuality or the role of leaders in the church or whatever it might be. How much longer is it going to be before we begin to doubt Paul's words about the new birth or about the disciplines of the Christian life? Our trust and obedience in scripture will go into decline and before long we'll find ourselves isolated from the body of believers. And thirdly, if we deny the inerrancy of the scriptures, what we do is we make our own human mind, our own reasoning of a higher standard than the authority of God's word. If we use our minds and our reasoning, our so-called common sense, to pass judgment on certain parts of the scripture and say of that section, well, it doesn't work for me, it doesn't make sense, it must be an error in the text, Something has crept into the God's word somewhere along the line. It's just not God's word. It's not for me. You see what we're doing? We're saying that we are better judges of what is true and right than what the scripture is itself. We lift human reasoning onto a pedestal and we, we judge the word of God according to our reasoning. The Pharisees did that in Jesus' day. So I close with just one or two words from a wonderful little booklet. That's the two-pound booklet. Remember the ones that were mentioned earlier? It's this, uh, I don't know if they're still here or not. The two-pound booklet. John Blanchard's little book. One of the things he says that for hundreds of years, probably two to three hundred years now especially, people have tried to whittle away at the accuracy of this book. Part of that was in the higher criticism movement we mentioned some time ago. But he quotes the the well-known American theologian R.C. Sproul, who says there is less reason today to believe that the Bible is full of contradictions than at any time in the history of the church. Whenever you're faced with a book, and whenever you're faced with the study of a book, and whenever you're faced with the legitimization of a book, you've always got to start by giving the book itself the benefit of the doubt. And it's, the onus is upon you to prove that it's not correct. You've got to start there. Professor Simon Greenleaf, a well-known professor of law at Harvard University just a few years ago, one of the world's greatest legal experts on legal evidence, at one stage on his, in his life went on a crusade to debunk the credibility of the New Testament. 
and he pursued this effort with great vigor for several years. And after several years of in-depth study and research on the New Testament, he came to the conclusion that, in fact, he'd been wrong all along. And he said, the New Testament is utterly reliable. And he adds, the attributes of truth are strikingly apparent throughout the gospel stories. After 200 years of determined attacks, the Bible has been left totally unscarred and unscathed. In 1974, there was a leading article in Time magazine. The article was entitled, How True is the Bible? And it came to this conclusion, and I'm going to quote some of this article. The breadth, diversity, and sophistication of all the biblical investigations are impressive, but it begs a question. Has it made the Bible more or less credible? After more than two centuries of facing the heaviest scientific guns that could be brought to bear, the Bible has survived. And it is perhaps better off after the siege even, after the, even on the critics' own terms, that is historical fact, the scriptures seem more acceptable now than they did when the rationalists began their attack. So the ball is now in the court of the readers of the Bible. We can believe it or we can reject it. We may choose to believe some of it and reject parts of it. That's a slippery slope. But if we do accept it, and this is indeed the word of God, and I'm turned to Song of Solomon's. That takes some believing at times. I'll, I'll agree with that. I'm making a study of Song of Solomon right now. That's a hard one, but I believe it's God's word, and I'm learning something from it, I tell you. If we believe that this is God's word, then quite frankly, our lives can never be the same again. Quite frankly. We need to, if it is God's word, we need to commit to reading it. Memorizing passages, reflecting on it, studying it as never before. Because these are God's words. God's words to us. There's no other authority. No other source of guidance. It's all we have. And we thank God every moment for it. You get your first memory verse? You remember it? We'll, we'll pass on that one because you did pretty well. What about last week's? Do you remember last week's? What was last week's now? That was the first week? It was Mark 13, verse 31. Do you remember what it was? You've got it. You've got it. Well done. Good stuff. I thought you struggled a wee bit there, so I've given you another very easy one, and it's one I quoted a little bit earlier. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, help us to fall in love with this book again. Thank you for your word. Amen.